everybody. Welcome to Dr. Who Podcast. We do appreciate y'all being here and supporting people that support us. Uh, ideas about guests, please do uh, send in uh, any of your ideas to contact at drdrew.com. We've got a lot of interesting guests coming up. Uh, today is no exception, of course. And do support the people that support us. We try to collect them and select them very carefully and uh, allows us to keep doing this thing. Don't forget After Dark and then the streaming show over at drdrew.tv. You'll get a blast there. Been some very interesting uh, real-time interviews going on in that uh, area. What can I tell you about? Uh, and we get sometimes some fun stuff coming in there, too. I just had Jimmy Fallon just the other day, and people seem to like that. Today, my guest is Dr. David Healy. He's a professor of psychiatry at McMaster University in Canada. And Emily Gray, a patient living with the condition we're going to talk about today. Uh, Dr. Healy has made significant contributions to so-called PSSD research. He's the CEO of RX, it's RISK, RIXISK, RIXISK, R-X-I-S-K, RISK. He writes a weekly blog on rxisk.org, risk.org. He provides update on PSSD research. Uh, he's conducting along with Dr. Garini. You can figure, you can find more at David Healy, H-E-A-L-Y dot org. Also check out the pssdnetwork.org. I'll tell you all about what we will be talking about. Nothing but PSSD in a, in a second. As I said, Emily's been living with this for over three years. Uh, she has a, is the co-founder of a charity around this issue in Canada, pssdcanada.ca.ourstories.emily's dash story dash one thank you both for being here thank you for having us thanks for having us uh emily i'm gonna put you aside for just a second i I know the patient stories are what people love to hear and want to hear but i want to frame the problem um that is that we're going to talk about something that i believe that most certainly primary physicians are probably not aware of and I was a part of campaigns back in the 90s trying to wear, raise awareness about just the sexual side effects of antidepressants while being prescribed and ran into a ton of brick walls there, just going out and trying to help people understand that the serotonin reuptake inhibiting psychotropic medications designed to treat depression that we don't really know how they work exactly, but we got some ideas about it, uh, affects all phases of the sexual cycle and now whether it's uh excitation orgasm detumescence whatever it might be libido it's all can be affected and lo and behold now we've discovered that a significant percentage and by significant i mean more than any have chronic symptoms in this domain after they get off the medication this is the pssd dr healy tell me about it yeah uh the whole story goes back about 60 years or so to the first antidepressants we had, many of which also inhibited serotonin reuptake. And they were used to treat people who are very severely depressed, who lost libido as part of the illness. But doctors then could pick out the fact that the antidepressant was also causing its own problems. With the MAOI? No, this is is drugs like amitriptyline. Ah, the early, the tricyclic antidepressants. Yes, exactly. Got it. By the mid-1970s, we were using these drugs in a tenth of the dose you give people who are depressed to treat premature ejaculation problems in men. What this means is within 30 minutes of your first pill, your genitals are going to be numb to some degree at least. Uh, And this happens in pretty well everyone that takes the pill. So we 
knew about this problem before we had the SSRI group of drugs. And in, you know, before the companies brought uh, drugs like Prozac and Zoloft uh, and Paxil onto the market, they had to do healthy volunteer trials. So they gave these drugs during the 1980s to young men, many of whom complained bitterly within the first few pills that, uh, you know, they were having problems being able to function. And some of them in these healthy volunteer trials looked like they had a problem that went on after the drug was stopped, and they'd only been on it for about two or three weeks. So within the first few years of the drugs being on the market and being used clinically, the companies were getting loads of reports of this problem. But yet, 30 years later, most people that get put on these drugs don't get told you can have right. a major problem when you go on them. Right. You may have a major problem with years because you can't, uh, you know, uh, in this area for years because you can't get off them. And if you do get off them thinking everything will be just fine, well, you might find that it's not. It gets even worse. This is an indictment of our profession. I, I, it, it, because I work in general medicine, I, I uh, also am aware of, and I'm just bringing this up as a sidebar, but the same, the pre- this precise phenomenon persists in the domain of uh, uh, hormonal contraceptives. They're using these extremely powerful progestational agents, and about 20% of women are having complete shutdown and, and having depression. I'm sure you see that. They get mood disturbances too. And about and a certain percentage, and again, there's debate about what the percentage is, have persistent symptoms of loss, loss of libido, mood disturbances, uh, dry vagina, and uh, sexual functioning issues. And it, there's a guy named Goldstein in Washington, D.C. that's actually isolated the, yeah, he's isolated the, the, the estrogen and progesterone receptors and found that those women have a very specific, what he calls, I think, long receptor or short receptor. I can't remember which it was. Uh, point being, doctors still don't tell the patients when they put them on those medications that they're going to get the effects while they're on them, let alone that they're risking permanent effects. So here we are, the same thing. Uh, it's, it's shocking to me. It's shocking. Yes, and just to add into that, uh, you know, the point I made early on was that way back when doctors were treating people who were very severely depressed and could see the sexual problems the illness was causing, they could also pick out the one the pill was causing. Yeah. The problem we have now is people like uh, perhaps maybe Emily will go along to the doctor with reasonably mild conditions that they yeah. maybe don't need a pill for, yeah. which doesn't cause sexual problems at all. Yeah. They go on the pill, they have problems, they come back to the doctor and say, I have problems, and he says, it's your illness that's causing it. Yes, and yeah. you could argue that back when these things were being developed, when people had very severe life-threatening, even depressions, it might have been worth the risk. So when yes, you, exactly. you know, we get, we, our enthusiasm is sort of in as though that's still the case with mild depressive features, which is just that's the this is the problem with much as anything primary care doctors over you know prescribing psychotropic medications, which makes me insane. Uh, I just to, just you know my story. I, I um I'm an internist, but I spent 35 years working in a psychiatric hospital, uh, amongst the other things I was doing, and uh, I, I was always interested in, in psychiatry and neuro neuroscience and things. And uh, so I thought, oh, you know, I have a good understanding of psychiatry. Within three months of me being there, I thought, I don't know shit. And then within like five years of being there, I thought, how does anybody treat a psychiatric patient without consultation? They're out of their minds, not letting an expert at least have a look. And that's the world we live in where uh, nobody gets to a psychiatrist anymore. It kills me. It kills me. So anyway, go go on. Tell me about the research and uh, what you've you know been finding, and you know how much suffering is actually going on here. And then we'll have Emily tell her story. 
Yeah, there's a few different problems. There's a few areas to research. One is to try and get a test that will prove that the person has a condition. Now, the kind of condition I think they probably have is a peripheral neuropathy. You know, you've got areas of skin going numb. Now, it's not just genitals. It can be the rest of your body as well, your hands, your feet, your chest, and things like that. So what we need is a peripheral neuropathy test that people can bring to doctors and say, look, this test shows that I have a real problem. The Mm. problem people find when they go to the doctor is they're told, this is actually a crazy idea. And people have been detained in mental hospitals because they've said, look, I've got PSSD. You know, as the doctor says, you've been off this drug for months or years. This can't be caused by your drug. And they insist it is because it's been there the whole time since they hold the drug. Oh, so what we need is a test. Now, the other thing, and this isn't all bad news in the sense, it looks like um, the SSRIs cause changes in the cell cycle division process. Mm. And the kind of changes that they cause, which may be linked to PSSD, are things that drugs which could treat COVID and could be good anti-tumor agents also cause. So if we can work out just what's going on with the SSRI group of drugs, which, by the way, Prozac has some anti-tumor effects, and it's an antibiotic as well. It isn't just an SSRI. And some of the some of uh, the antibiotics we use are also SSRIs. So oh. people often say, "I've got PSSD when I went on the full pill, uh, first pill, you know, the first Zoloft pill that I took." But mm-hmm. lots of people don't actually know that they may have had an SSRI before that. One of the antibiotics they used, analgesics, are antihistamines, may have primed them to get this reaction. Does so, priming increase the risk? Well, it looks like lots of it. I mean, it's most unusual to get a person having PSSD out of their first pill. Mm. I think it can happen. But the problem I have in, uh, in actually saying that to you is I know lots of us inadvertently or unknowingly have had an SSRI previously. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one of the things we can't say for sure, the usual thing you get is people go on an SSRI, they're able to come off it, they go on it again, and probably you know, the second or third time that they've been on it, that's when the problem hits. So it looks like you have to be primed. Do but, any of the, I've got a million questions for you. Do, do any of the SSRI withdrawal syndrome treatments help with this, like the cyproheptadines and all this stuff? There's anything yeah. in that because if there can be people don't know there can be a withdrawal syndrome from SSRIs, certain ones, and does and that has some things that sometimes kind of work. Is anything like that been tried for this? Oh yeah, no, no. People have got uh, who've got PSSD, uh, and people are, uh, have actually been having PSSD for twenty, thirty years. Of course, doctors. PhDs and things like that, they go and research the receptors and they take all the kinds of drugs that they think should reverse what they suspect has actually caused the problem. And yeah. nothing that we've got at the moment is a cure. Every huh. so often people try things and the problem clears up, but it's rare. Huh. And the probability is that, well, it may clear up, but it can take some years to do so. And it may be coincidental with the fact that you've tried uh, actually something else. But part of the problem, this links back to the withdrawal issue that you talked about. There are people who can get off SSRIs quite easily. There are people who can get off them, but they have to taper very, very slowly for months or even years. And every so often there there are pills that can help that. 
But there's a bunch of people who, when they try to get off an SSRI, have what's called protracted withdrawal problems, which are probably closely related to PSSD. Uh, and this, again, I think, is the fact that the drug, drugs leave a peripheral neuropathy behind after them, and you're left with enduring symptoms that could go on until the nerves regenerate. So what we're looking at, and we may be close to it, is trying to find treatments that may help peripheral nerve regeneration. And it looks like some of the drugs that people are working on just now, which work on the cholinergic system, may be helpful in this area work on the cholinergic system? How does that cause uh, nerve regrowth? Well, it looks like acting on the M3 receptor does seem in animals, and there's some human clinical trials also showing that in diabetic neuropathy, it does cause peripheral nerve regrowth. Cholinergic medication. So what are we trying here? Well, drugs, which we often call the anticholinergic drugs, which have had a terrible reputation. They cause awful problems, supposedly. But a lot of the problems they supposedly cause, I think, are marketing copy. And this goes all the way back to the early tricyclic uh, antidepressants, where in uh, the 1960s, doctors said, these work by catecholamine reuptake inhibition. And then Mm. they moved on from that to serotonin reuptake um, inhibition. So if we can just make pure drugs to work on either the catecholamine system or the serotonin system. We love drugs that work wonderfully well and be free of problems. And all the problems come from the anticholinergic effects of some of these older drugs. In actual fact, if you talk to patients, they often say the anticholinergic drugs, the pure anticholinergic drugs they were on, are the ones that make them feel the best. So Hmm. I think we've had a lot of marketing copy thrown into the mix here and trying to disentangle all of that is one of the issues that we've got now. You've been hearing me talk about Enterra skincare for quite some time. It's an incredible line of products. There is the Folatin Hair Regrowth Serum, that's right, as well as the ultimate solution for rejuvenating your skin, Platinum Restore Serum. It's an advanced serum, secret weapon against aging, but Intera Skin Care doesn't stop there. They also have platinum silk hair and body oils. If you're looking for targeted results without adding moisturizing, there's Sapphire Lux Filming Serum. It's there for you. This concentrated formula tightens and firms the skin, reducing the appearance of fine lines and wrinkles. And then finally, Sapphire Lux Cream. Not just another moisturizer. It's a healing elixir. So why wait? Experience the magic of Antara skincare today. Say hello to a more radiant you. And don't miss out on this incredible opportunity to transform your beauty routine. I want you to visit their website, enteraskincare.com, to explore their full range of products and start your journey. One more time, don't miss out on this incredible opportunity to transform your beauty routine. Use promo code DREW for 10% off at checkout. That is code DREW, just D-R-E-W, for 10% off at Entera, E-N-T-E-R-A, EnteraSkinCare.com. When you talk about neuropathy, can that be documented or has that been documented? Obviously, people usually point at the legs because those are the long nerves that deteriorate as we age anyway. Any any obvious findings there? Are you talking about nerves to the pelvis, like the pudendal nerve or something? 
Yeah, well, I think you're probably looking at, um, in the case of people who've got SSD, I mean, part of the focus is on the fact that we can't function from uh, a sexual point of view and we're genitally numb. But if you talk to people, they'll, they'll actually explain to you that we've got odd feelings all around our body. And not only that, but we've got POTS-like problems and things like that, which are usually linked to what we call an autonomic neuropathy. So there's a more generalized neuropathy rather than just the the genital problem can you what we've got that? in the case yeah. pardon can you document that can you can you do an emg or nerve conduction or something and show statistical well, differences this is the issue uh, most of the things that we do mostly test motor nerves we've got very few tests that are particularly good for uh, at the sensory uh, uh, um, uh, at the sensory nervous uh, kind of system so that's what i'm uh actually trying to work on just now and one of the oddities uh, that we've got at the moment is trying to work out where to look and one of the interesting places to look is in the cornea of the eye mm. which is among the most densely peripherally nervous innervations that we've got anywhere in the body so hopefully in uh uh um at the next two or three weeks uh I've got a bunch of patients who've got PSSD who are going to go and get their corneas tested. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I, I, I want to bring Emily in just a second to sort of piggyback on some of the symptom descriptions you've just uh, scrolled through. But before I do, one last question for me, which is a lot of my patients complain about libido drop in addition to all the other things we've been talking about. Is that a wholly separate phenomenon where their sort of libido is shut down? No, it's not. And this is one of the interesting things. When people talk about uh, at the antidepressants causing this kind of problem, the usual response from people that have the problem or are listening to them is that, well, this must be a brain issue. Something has gone wrong in the brain. I think it's probably the other way around. What, uh, what drugs that act on uh, at the serotonin system do is they work on sensory receptors and your brain feels closed down afterwards are less reactive because there's less sensation coming in. Mm. But the problem I think is if you cut sensation off after a period of time, people lose interest. So you begin with genital numbness You begin, and soon after that, you find you've got a muted orgasm and over a period of weeks, you begin to lose libido. But it's very much a case, I think, uh, you know, things are happening in the periphery to begin with. And then we end up afterwards, uh, you know, the brain more or less thinking, well, there's no real point to me being interested in this anymore because, you know, I just don't feel the buzz and I'm not able to function. Let, let's hear from the patient, Emily Gray. She's been living with this for three years. Uh, again, I'm going to give you the name of her uh, charity is pssdcanada.ca.our-stories forward slash emilys-story-1. And uh, don't forget the pssdnetwork.org. Yeah, I think, Emily, he's on to something there, don't you? I, I've noticed that the loss of interest is is, in fact, how my patients describe this syndrome, not you're right. It's not lack of libido per se, because you're you don't want to your engagement with life is still quite good. You just lose interest in this one area, correct? Yeah, well, I would describe it as uh, 
subjectively as total de-eroticization. So I don't experience any libido. I don't experience um, any um, sexual sensation whatsoever. And it occurred very, very suddenly uh, during my withdrawal from the SSRI citalopram. Hey, Emily, Emily, wait, I've got a lot of questions for you, so I apologize. I'm going to interrupt. Uh, yes, that is, I, you're, thank you for describing that the way you did, because when I've spoken to patients about this before, they will say like, de- they, they had words like, uh, like, I forget what they would describe, but they would say like watching somebody kiss would be sort of confusing and uncomfortable. It's like, why would they do that? There's not, there's nothing. Do you like completely blank on anything sexual? Is that, that's what you're describing, right? Um, it's like going from being a, a heterosexual person to being a completely asexual person. Yeah. yeah. But, but sex like, it's like, it's like an empty set right there. And you, you said something interesting also, it, it didn't happen while you were on the medication, which is, I'm, I'm not used to so much that happening. Is that accurate? I experienced the standard side effect of lowered libido while on the medication. Um, but the, Total PSSD occurred while I was withdrawing, yes. I haven't actually defined the term yet. It's post-serotonin, post-SSRI sexual dysfunction, PSSD. And, and that, I'm sorry, Emily, I'm going to switch back to Dr. Healy. Dr. Healy, is that common the way she's describing it? It's not been what I've experienced so much, but I'm sure it happens. Yeah. Yes, it is. Now, the classic PSSD you have to come off the drug first to know for sure this is what you have. Yeah. But it's very clear also that there's a bunch of people who are on the drugs before they come off it. Maybe they aren't able to get off uh, who look like they've got PSSD while they're on the drug. It's just you can't be absolutely sure because, um, as I say, you have to come off. You may have a profound numbness and things like that while you're on the drug, but usually when you come off, it gets even worse. Now, we know there's tens of thousands of people who've got PSSD, they're off the drug and they have a clear problem. There may be hundreds of thousands of people who are on the drugs, but we don't know for sure they've got PSSD because you have to come off for us to know for sure. But they're functioning almost as though they've got PSSD in the sense they're profoundly numb, have lost libido completely. I'm having trouble with the neuropathy construct in the sense that, you know, having worked with lots of neuropathy patients, they take a while to develop. And it sounds like this happens almost immediately after coming off the medication. What's the mechanism? And I mean, the nerves just don't die. They sort of retract, right? I mean, what's going on there? That's a really great point. And I think what you get is um, one of the oddities about the SSRI group of drugs is they're also used to treat the pain of neuropathy. I've been thinking about worrying about that as you talked about it. Yeah, yeah. So they can be causing neuropathy while they've been used to treat it. And then when you lift them off the harmed nerve endings, then you get the uh, full-blown neuropathy. Yeah. Okay, Emily, so you're withdrawing. What do you imagine is happening to you as that happens? I don't know what's happening biologically. I just know what I experience. No, no, I mean, are you, do you complain to your doctor? Are you thinking, oh, I guess oh, this is part of the withdrawal? Yeah, I, I very, very soon after beginning to experience those symptoms, I made an appointment with my doctor um, and I explained what I was experiencing. And there was a denial that that could be caused by the SSRI. Oh boy. Um, so I started searching a little further and I started doing a little more research and I discovered other doctors who are aware of it being caused by an SSRI. Mm. 
Um, and the most prominent of which was Dr. David Healy. And I started reading his work and his description of the symptoms that he has observed in many people were a very close match for my own. I, I don't know quite how to ask my next question, but it's our, sort of in the, are you okay zone? How do, how do you live with this? It's very difficult to feel like a normal person and to function day to day when um, you've had something like this happen to you. Um, it really, it takes a, a part of you away that is very human and very um, organic. Yeah. And so I feel kind of like a robot going through daily life. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a sacred part of the human experience that has been stripped from me. And I really struggle to feel like myself or just feel like a human being. So a lot of surviving with it just comes down to compartmentalization. Dr. Healy, can they optimize? Uh, how, how old are you, Emily, if you don't mind me asking? I'm 27. Oh, geez. I was going to talk about hormone replacement and things like that, but that's completely meaningless. You're not on a birth control pill, are you? No, and I wasn't when I first got PSSD yeah. either. I'm just wondering if there, if you can enhance other systems. You know, Is that also a worthwhile pursuit? Let's say she was 45, perimenopausal, or 35, even early perimenopause. And uh, we wanted to give her some testosterone and some estrogen and see if that helped at all. Have you seen any of that be useful? No, um, there isn't. uh, At this point in time, we don't have anything that reliably makes a difference. Um, Every so often, people try drugs and they get a window. They can be reasonably okay for a week or so. So it looks like it's not permanent nerve damage. There's some blockage um, which we need to be able to try and remove. Uh, so there's mm. hope there, and that's what uh, 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 spurs the research on. Um, but at the moment, no, um, we have no cure. And the unfortunate thing is, as I'm sure you'll uh, also hear probably from Emily, is that she will know, and I know for sure, because we get people every month or two who um, actually kill themselves. And there's well, good evidence that they kill themselves, and it's because of the PSSD. And the sense they have, not just uh, uh, at the PSSD and what you've heard uh, actually described so well by Emily, but also the sense that nobody's doing anything about yeah, it. hopeless. They it's felt hopeless. that, yeah. yeah. That's the exactly. feeling. And that's what I was going to ask Emily next was, is, and I'm wondering if you think, I, I don't know even how to process this, but is it the desperation and helplessness of the PSSD or is it the recurrence of the depression? Emily, do you feel, did you get depressed again because of all this or were you even depressed in the first place when they put you on this stuff? Um, I experienced what I would now call quite minor anxiety and depression during my teenage years, which is when I was originally put on the SSRI. Um, but the symptom profile was completely different than anything I experienced with PSSD. Um, the PSSD was a very different internal sensation and I had never experienced any um, negative sexual symptoms from what I was uh, diagnosed with previously. So it really, there's no comparison. Did did it, are you falling into a depression or can you identify mood disturbance coming from this or as a, as a result? The, the, the the emotional state I experience uh, regarding PSSD is just grief. I wouldn't call it depression. I would describe it as a deep sense of grief at that loss. You know, listen, I I almost don't want to ask questions because I don't want to uh, provoke anything. Please go ahead. But, but, you know, grief that is sustained like this heads into depression, right? 
Um, it can. Um, it doesn't feel similarly to what I was diagnosed with previously. Mm. Um, and it's, it's specifically regarding the PSSD. Like there's other aspects of my life, like family life that is all right and that I can still attain uh, joy and meaning from. Okay. Um, but the PSSD, it, it weighs uh, very heavily on me. And, and if you don't mind, I want to ask some kind of specific questions about sexual arousal. Is there any way to create anything like a sexual arousal or is it just totally no. shut down all the time? And orgasmic function is just gone? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and Dr. Healy, back to my thoughts about depression. When you mentioned people killing themselves, you know, we link suicide to depression, but obviously suicidality can be wholly different than depression, wholly related to something else, wholly independent of depression. What do you imagine is the process here that's going on with the patients that do get desperate like that? Well, there's um, a lot of people who get PSSD and they have the kind of picture you've heard uh, just described, but they live with it. They endure with it. Mm. Others find they just can't, that Mm -hmm. a critical part of themselves has been killed off and things like that. And there's no hope. There isn't anyone doing the, you know, uh, the kind of research that we need uh, to be able to find a cure. And they just figure they can't go on. Um, so part of my job often is not to say to people that you want to kill yourself, but try to give them hope in the sense that there is a lot more research that's now beginning to happen. It's so coming. there is hope that yeah, in uh, yeah, the near future that we w- will be able to do things. But it's not depression that's leading them uh, to be suicidal. It's yeah. a more existential hopelessness. Yeah, dread. Ugh. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I think you know that I'm a big advocate of therapy, and now with the advent of digital media, BetterHelp is an excellent alternative, in particular if you're somebody who is um, worried about stigma or embarrassment, and perhaps you feel like your brain is getting its own way, like you know what you should do or what's good for you, but you just can't seem to do it. That's a great point for therapy to enter. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Switch therapist anytime for no additional charge, Make your brain your friend with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Drew today to get 10% off your first month. That is BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Drew, D-R-E-W, BetterHelp.com slash Drew. And... and Yeah, I'm thinking about the anticholinergic medication. We've got a lot of stuff flying around these days that has anticholinergic effects. Has everything been tried? I guess you've said a lot of things have been tried. Well, I have an interesting story for you on that line. About 10 years ago, um, there was an interesting article which came out from Scripps, which said that benztropine looks like it can cause peripheral nerve regeneration. Hmm. And Merck removed it from the market in loads of countries, because their view at the time was, well, it was in a very low dose that it was being used, and this was what seemed to be helping. So there's a different mechanism beneath the anticholinergic action. And mm. if the company could find what that was, they'd be able to bring the new drug uh, on the market for a huge price. Benztropin mm. is an old drug that costs nothing. But it turns out it looks like it's the anticholinergic action that's doing 
the trick. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, benzotropin is one of the drugs that could conceivably help, but you need to take it in a low dose and you need to take it probably for a few months to um, to actually see a change. And when it was used therapeutically, it was always in a low dose, like one milligram. How, how low are we talking about? <laughs> yeah, you're talking about possibly a half milligram or even less. Yeah. And... Mm. and- do you have a theory of what the mechanism is of the improvement? Is there anything we can kind of hang our hat on? Have you have any theory out there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's two or three theories. Um, if you look at what's uh, what's actually been written by the groups working on this, they talk about its mitochondrial function, that the mm-hmm. anticholinergic drugs reawaken mitochondria that have closed down. Mm-hmm. The other theory is that, well, actually – Nerves follow blood vessels. So actually what the anticholinergic drugs are doing is to enhance blood flow. Hmm. And the peripheral nerves follow that. Have you tried anything in sort of in that the, the cardiovascular space that can maybe do that? Yeah, there's um, a group of drugs that work on VG, VEGF, which... Yeah. Um, uh, I can't remember exactly what the E stands for, but it's a growth factor that's, uh, that's, that helps to get um, uh, at blood vessels regrowing. Um, and yeah, I'm sure there are drugs in this area that could conceivably help. Things are actually beginning to become a little clearer about things that possibly do help. But as you say, the key thing, I mean, it isn't just trying to find a drug that helps, it's trying to work out how it's helping. And if we right. understand how it's helping, we will really then be able to do much yes, more good, I hope. it's fascinating. And I, I think I heard you say that some anti-COVID medication had been deployed or something. Did I hear you say that? No, you didn't. It's one of the hopes of this research, which is looking at one of the harms the SSRI group of drugs cause, is if we can understand what's going on, it looks like it's going to be uh, a thing that will offer us better anti virals which can be used to treat COVID. Like one of the SSRIs, one of the ones that um, isn't used much in uh, the United States, a drug called Luvox, has been in clinical trials and people claim that it actually shows benefits for COVID. So I I took it for long COVID and within 30 minutes of my first dose, the ringing in my ears went away. All right. And, and And the long COVID resolved within two weeks. And I'd been stuck, stuck with it for three months prior to that. And uh, I was talking to one of the funders of the some of the original fluvoxamine research. And he was like, why, why, well, you have no downside. Why don't you try this? And uh, interestingly, I had a lot of inflammatory mediators checked in my head too. And my VEGF was way up. Uh, so I don't know, maybe fluvoxamine takes VEGF in the other direction I, I, or affects VEGF in some interesting way. But but the theory there is that it's the, the sigma-1 anti-inflammatory receptor, which okay. Prozac and uh, Fluvox have very powerful effects on, which is this whole, you know, this is again, why I sort of tilted in the opening remarks that we don't really know how antidepressants work because they have all these protein mechanisms. Well, there's uh, an intriguing story there. Um, it looks like um, the SSRIs work on a thing called the P63 regulatory protein, and that acts on the ACE2 receptor. And when COVID hit first, people were awfully worried about people being on drugs or acting on the ACE2 uh, receptor, which might just make you more at risk of actually 
getting COVID. But there is a different drug which works on P63 and ACE2 receptors, which is anti-cancer and anti-COVID, and that's thalidomide. Oh, so you did mention that. Whose actions we don't fully understand even now. Yeah, yeah. You you tilted past it at the very beginning. You said I... Because uh, I thought I heard you say that, but that's fascinating. Isn't that interesting? And it has, must have anticholinergic effects too. It's that kind of medicine, isn't it? Well, no, um, actually, I don't think it has, but it's got very SSRI-like effects. It causes sexual dysfunction. Mm. It causes people to become suicidal. It can make you agitated, and it causes a peripheral neuropathy. This is what led Francis Kelsey to hold it up and say, look, this drug cannot come on the U.S. market. Emily, you're hearing us talk about, you know, the biology as though you're not a human suffering with this thing. I, I, and I don't mean to, neither of us, of course, mean to, to speak about this that way. What do you want people to know about this condition? What I want people to know is that we don't have solid numbers on how many people are affected by this. Um, but if you do find yourself struggling with PSSD, there is an expanding network of people out here who are trying to raise awareness and trying to build community around it. Um, the most active one is the PSSD network, which Dr. Drew has already mentioned. Um, you should absolutely look them up. I know how incredibly isolating and devastating this condition can be, but you aren't alone. And we absolutely are going to make this common knowledge so that it doesn't keep happening to people. It's Dr. Healy, what do you, how many people you imagine, say, in North America, stuff would think? It's got to be in the close to hundreds of thousands, right? Certainly tens of thousands. Yes. Well, I think we know for sure that there's at least 10,000 people, probably tens of thousands, yeah. um, who clearly yeah. have PSSD. I, I hear from it probably, all the time. I hear from people all um, the time. And a I, lot I, of other people. We know that roughly one in six people uh, in the United States is on these drugs, uh, and mainly because they can't get off them. And a lot of those possibly have PSSD also. So mm-hmm. it's a very big problem. And the biggest problem of all is when you go to your doctor and maybe he pushes the drugs on you. I mean, you're not going to get the drugs, but he says, look, there is this option and he gives you, you know, these drugs work well, et cetera, et cetera. 30 years later, 30 years after we've known this can happen, people aren't being told. You know, they're, they're just not being let know. I know. A I lot of them would say, our, well, maybe I, I can wait a little bit longer and see I, if things I, clear up. Yeah. I, I worry about our profession. I, I, it has become so automated, perfunctory, um, un, unthinking in the sense of deep critical thought. Uh, I don't know. I'm really worried about it. I, I, it's, yeah, me it, too. I think yeah. um, things are actually getting worse. Yeah, um, and, and we've got... Drugs chasing drugs these days. And there's a there's a slightly, I'm going to use some very strong language here, but I saw evidence of it during COVID. Certainly there's a slightly cultish quality to how we behave. And I, I actually was thinking about this a couple of years before COVID. I was thinking, you know, why do I do that in those renal failure patients? I said, well, I, the, the nephrologist I respected during residency told me to do that. And that's what I do now. And I thought, wait a minute, that, that is that is nutty. You got to think everything through, every choice you make, not just because it's it's dogma or somebody in authority told you to do it. But I think all too often we are in this kind of group think bubble that we get caught in. Yeah, and one of the other one of the things that PSSD also and 
people who have problems on drugs generally is doctors aren't looking at their patients and not listening to them. And these days, people who are on these pills have Google and they can research things uh, 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 um, themselves. And someone like you and me, as opposed to having 100 heart sync patients, if we just listen to patients, we can have 100 free research assistants and the job could be a lot more fun. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Emily, your thoughts on this? I mean, I think the average doctor definitely is is well intentioned towards their patients, um, but there's definitely an there's definitely an ignorance of the existence of this condition. Most doctors themselves haven't heard of it, um, and it's very unlikely that they're going to bring it up in a clinical setting. And often, when patients bring it up, um, there's there's deep skepticism about it. And I think there there certainly needs to just be um, more respect and more communication uh, between doctors and patients. Um, I would also like to see better reporting f- uh, about uh, drug reactions, mm. because if, thing, if this had been reported by doctors who had patients coming forward with these uh, reactions, um, then we could have had a much larger uh, body of data and literature about it much sooner. I completely agree with you. And and then I'm I'm thinking as I hear you speaking about it, the, the, the risk reward part of this, that back to what Dr. Healy and I were talking about in our sort of cult behavior, we have to really be clear what risks we're taking. And we've lost <laughs> some of that. And by the way, Dr. Healy, in, in your end of the profession in psychiatry, I, I spent a lot of time cleaning up psychiatric uh, medical messes from psychotropic medications. And psychiatry doesn't, there's an enthusiasm in psychiatry uh, without uh, some of the the sense of medications being dangerous. The medications are, all medication are dangerous. And we have to always yeah. keep that in mind every time I prescribe. And I was sort of one of the, you know, as, as much as I was uh, in, in appreciation of my psychiatric colleagues' abilities and, and knowledge base what I, I was a little worried about their lack of concern for the medical consequences of some of their choices yeah I, yeah sure uh, i think when you and i trained first polypharmacy was a word that you hadn't probably or at least i hadn't heard about when i trained first well, but I, it I, began I, to come I, on the radar about it, 20 but, years ago or so it was it was it was yes it became very fashionable to talk about it and then talk about de-prescribing and all this stuff. But yeah. I saw a pretty hefty polypharmacy going on in the 90s. Pretty hefty. Oh, sure. But yeah. yeah, the point I was going to make was that it was men and maybe women in their 50s who were on too many drugs. Mm. Now it's teens. You've got mm-hmm. teens on five to 10 psychotropic drugs only, an antidepressant, two or three mood stabilizers, um, a stimulant to combat the effects of the antipsychotic, which is just crazy. I mean, it's bananas. Who knows? Who knows what we're doing there? Uh-huh. My goodness. Um, well, I, I certainly appreciate the research. I appreciate Emily and her, and her peers coming forward with this because, but Emily, you know what you were saying about uh, awareness and about reporting and stuff like that. Um, if you remember in the first part of our conversation, Dr. Healy and I were talking about similar effects from hormonal contraceptives and no one talking about that and no one informing patients <laughs> and no one reporting it. And I think the the terrible, you know, the, again, as we're sort of ashamed of ourselves as physicians, uh, the further indictment is it, it's not just SR, SRIs. They're associated no. with some things. There's a lot of stuff out there with similar, may, maybe the SSRIs 
because they're so widely prescribed and they're so likely to cause problems and are so under, um, that's so under-recognized, it becomes much more dramatic. But there's a lot of stuff out there like this. You know, I, I worry, Dr. Healy, about the enthusiasm around Abilify. Because I've seen some stuff there where I'm like, oh, this is a this is <laughs> this is yeah. a serious thing. I've seen movement disorders and things like that. I get very nervous about that. Uh, do you have nervous about? Are you nervous about other psychotropic medications too? Oh, I think um, uh, yeah, I think they're all tricky. Now, um, I have to make clear to people, I use these drugs to treat. Yeah, me too. Me too. Absolutely. We, I think I think we need to remember that um, every pill is a poison. The person you put on the pills needs to know this. You need to know this is what you're doing and what are the consequences that yeah, can right. be the things don't actually work out right. So you need to take care. And I think we've lost that sense. Too many doctors think these drugs are sacramental. They can yeah. only do good. They can't do harm. That's right. Uh, That's right. And, and I think just to come back to a point that was made earlier um, by um, uh, when Emily was actually talking about Doctors not listening to people like her reporting these things. Mm. What we've got in the case of PSSD is a very evident problem. I mean, the illness doesn't cause genital numbness. If a person's there saying my genitals are numb, and the first lady that I can recall said to me, look, you know, I've been off these drugs for three months. I can take a hard bristled brush and rub it up and down my genitals and feel nothing. Now, there's no mental illness or any other illness I can think of that causes something like that. That's the kind of thing that's evident. It's an evidence-based medicine. And one of the problems we've got is evidence-based medicine. You've got companies saying, we run clinical trials, and that's what really tells us what drugs do. Well, they don't. They tell us the average effects of a drug and when you and i treat patients we're not there's no average patient there's a person like emily who's going to react completely different to a bunch of other people and we need to remember that and listen to her and look closely at her and work with her yes completely agree Hey, this is Eric Griffin. And I'm Brendan Schaub. And I'm Chris D'Elia. And we are... Golden Hour. All right, yeah, dude, we are. So check it out, you know? Check it out and stuff. Funniest right? podcast in the land. Make sure you check us out. It is a grand old time. It is. It's a good time. And you can uh, subscribe to the channel and also our uh, Patreon, patreon.com slash the Golden Hour Podcast. Golden Hour Podcast. Or, or even listen for free. We're here for you. Everywhere. Yep. Stay uh, everywhere. everywhere. It's YouTube. It's all sorts of different places, dude. If you aren't seeing it, it's not because it's not where you listen, dude. and back to the the prescribing both you and i we use these medications and and they save people's lives routinely and then the risk reward is clear we know what we're doing it's in these you know more more milder situations like you said which emily probably represented that the the risk I, and and the culture at large has sort of taken the position that medications make life better <laughs> and it's it's not it's that we are biological we get sick sickness it can be horrible and awful and destructive and dangerous and the medicines sometimes are worth that risk mm-hmm. so yep i have a neat little story here which hopefully is going to appeal to you when i say to my colleagues look we give poisons and the art of medicine trying to bring good out of the use of pill. Mm-hmm. I get hissed at a lot. But um, I actually had a patient a while back who had 
OCD. And he was an extremely nice man. I was extremely keen to help him. So we put him on an SSRI. Didn't help him. We put the dose up, made things worse. We added things in, made things worse again. Then some weeks later, he comes back to the clinic to see me. And he's obviously looking a little better. And I'm pleased because I'm just keen that he gets well. And he says, look, I've come off all your pills. And I think to myself, that's great. I don't mind that, provided you're better. Absolutely. And then, then he says, and I took up smoking. (laughs) And I don't mind that either. Now, people will say nicotine. They'll say, that's a poison, but he's bringing good out of it. But before he went on it, and here's uh, the rub, he said, I Googled nicotine and OCD. And, you know, there's a bunch of trials showing it. It can be helpful. And he printed some things off and he didn't know it, but the top article that he brought into me uh, 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 to show me was an article that had Arvid Carlson on the authorship line. This is the man who made SSRIs, the first SSRI. Hmm. He won the Nobel Prize for medicine, hmm. but he was a man who recognized there's no drug that suits everyone. Hmm. And SSRI may suit you if you've got OCD. Nicotine may suit Emily if she's got OCD. There's therapeutic principles. We're all different. And the clinical skill is trying to recognize what therapeutic principle this particular person needs. You don't just give a drug because it's an anti-OCD drug. You think, what does this person need? Yeah, I completely agree. And then, of course, the world is completely screwed up on nicotine versus tobacco. Nicotine is relatively harmless. Tobacco is what kills. Get, get him on vaping or nicotine replacement patches or all kinds of things that we could do. It's very interesting. Uh, Emily, you wanted to speak there. I, I, we interrupted you a little bit. Oh, I wanted to say that, uh, well, I think you're absolutely right that there's always going to be a cost-benefit analysis with prescribing any kind of psychotropic medication or any medication for that matter. Yeah. Um, with a negative impact this extreme and potentially permanent, I think there has to be an emphasis on informed consent. And that goes for someone who has a relatively mild case of depression or whatever else they're being prescribed an SSRI for, or a much more severe case. Even a severe case of depression, that person has the right to know, if you take this, it is possible that your sexuality can be completely chemically stripped from your body. They have the right to know that, so then they can weigh up the risk themselves. It has to be for the patient to weigh up that risk, not only the physician. I completely agree. How how would that risk um, that that uh, consent do you think be best rendered? In other words, does there need to be a form? You have to. I mean, how involved do we get? This is always the question. And mm-hmm. and of course, they don't do nearly enough. I'm I'm with you 100 percent on that. I mean, just look at the vaccines that were rolled out recently. With they were supposed to have written consent for those things. Nope, nobody did that. Uh, what do you think ought to be done? Well, when you are in uh, the doctor's office and they are discussing with you the medication and whether or not you want to go on the medication, they will frequently bring up potential side effects and potential negative treatment outcomes um, up to and including suicidal ideation or suicide. You know, my doctor, when I was being prescribed the medication, uh, did say to me, you know, in some individuals, this medication will make the depression worse. Um, So if they can talk about that potential treatment outcome with me, I think they should also be talking about this potential treatment outcome. I would like to see it be brought up by the doctor in a clinical setting. So just verbally, 
just verbally verbally and and uh like a black box warning or a form that would be excellent as well black box warning do, is that likely to happen dr healy do you think well i don't know it will happen if the companies that um, make SSRIs, which are now old <laughs> drugs and yeah. they don't make much money right. from them if right. they're trying to get rid of them that's when we hear about the the hazards yeah yeah so yeah, this this is a interesting area, Emily. You're bringing up that I've been thinking about lately. It's like how how do we know we fully inform the patient, and, and how do we know we're delivering it in a way that they can hear it, and how do we know that we're not triggering symptomatology in the way we deliver it? You know, to you know, if you're anxious or paranoid or something, and we don't we don't give it to you in a way that you can digest it in context. These are complicated issues, and then if we just give somebody a piece of paper that has a bunch of legal stuff on it. Well, nobody reads, you know, we're just going to sign it. You're not going to really learn much. So I keep, keep thinking about it. I mean, I know, I know this is a very passionate area for you and, and it should be much more frequently. It should be universally discussed. I, I absolutely agree with you on that. It, 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 they don't even discuss the side effects while you're on the medicine, let alone the ones when you're coming mm-hmm. on. So, so I, I don't disagree with you. And, and, um, and I think I got to you or maybe, Somebody referred me to you guys because, you know, I hear a lot about this in my chat rooms and things like that. It, the people that have this are, are quite uh, interested that the world should understand that they don't want other people to suffer this way. They're quite interested. Exactly. That this should be, this should be top of mind for physicians. And I, I'm sorry to tell you, we ain't there yet. And, and, it, and it kills me. Um, I think, one of the things that needs to come out of this program is just how much the people who've got PSSD have done to raise yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, awareness of the issues. And for a long time, most people who had the problem felt they couldn't let anyone else know that they had the problem. They didn't want their names out there, but they've realized, you know, we, we really do have to come out. We need to put our names behind it yeah. uh, because if we don't, nobody's going to pay any heed to us. And that's the kind of thing that they've been doing lately. Let me again mention it's David Healy, H-E-A-L-Y dot org, uh, Emily's PSSD. It's the, the Canadian PSSD Society. Okay. The, if I just look up the Canadian PSSD Society, they'll, yeah. they'll get Minus. to Okay. And then the PSSD network.org if people want more information. It's been a really interesting conversation, you guys. Is, is there more to be, well, of course, there's always more to be said, but is there anything we have left out? We covered most of the topics, yes. Dr. Well, I think a lot of people will say to you that it's not just genital. This causes an emotional mm-hmm. numbness also. So that's a huge factor. Yeah, that's what I, I that's I'm I'm gonna leave this conversation thinking about that, trying to figure out how neuropathy and what, what the patient calls libido drop off and that yeah, that emotional kind of numbing. I let's try and understand. One of the people who um uh dropped me an email recently, said, look, this is just the opposite to uh, at the psychedelic drugs. They open your mind up. This closes your mind down. People tried psychedelics to treat this? Yes, I have. Tried. I mean, we have tried loads of things, and they yeah. don't help. They aren't the answer to PSSD. Hmm. Interesting. Well, Emily, I, I have a feeling they're going to find some decent treatments out there. I mean, they, they're, they're, on, they're hot in pursuit. Uh, and you can, you can kind of tell when, when we're getting close to something and it feels like you know, when you talk to somebody like Dr. Healy, who's in this full scale, you can tell that it's getting close. So uh, I look forward to somebody having something to offer you soon. 
Well, that's wonderful to hear. I mean, we're, we're a big community and I'm in touch with people almost daily. Um, more people getting in touch with me, um, looking for support. And I think it's really good that I'm finally starting to have some good news to answer with. The fact that, that there are things that work, even though they're short term success, it just kind of, it, you, if you can get the mechanism, if they can figure out the mechanism, they're, they're onto it. And then you can enhance that mechanism uh, pharmacologically, and, and that, then we're good. All right, guys, uh, anything else before I wrap this up? Just thank you no, very, it's very good. Yes. Um, thanks. It's been great that you've aired this, and I think it's actually going to make a big difference. I, I hope so. I, again, it's, it's not like I haven't heard about this. I, I have heard about it quite a bit. And uh, it's been, like I said, back in the 90s, I did a campaign about the SSRIs and their, and their uh, sexual side effects. And then probably, probably 12, 14 years ago, I started hearing about the withdrawal stuff. And it was around the same time I was thinking about the progestational agents, which is why that, that sort of comes up for me. But it's... Um, it's a, it, it shouldn't it shouldn't happen. It certainly shouldn't happen without people understanding there's a risk there. That is for sure. All right. Thank you so much, guys. And for everyone else, we will see you next time. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com.